This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by BeaverFit. And as always, this is another company that I've not only been aware of for several years, but I also completely trust and I know is a great fit for this audience. Having not only been a firefighter in my career, but also a strength and conditioning coach, I've seen the challenges that we have getting the tactical athlete fit when it comes to budgets, when it comes to space. And BeaverFit has solutions for so many of our challenges. When it comes to space, they have the gym box, for example, which is literally the size of a footlocker that when you open it up and build it becomes a squat rack, a pull-up bar, a box, and even a warball target. So you can get a full workout for a crew purely on that one box. Expanding out, they have storage containers that become entire gyms. You store everything in the inside and you can then deploy racks and pull-up bars on the outside. They have gyms on trailers you can take from station to station. They have tactical boxes with breaching props and collapse props. And then on the flip side, the durability is another issue that we see. So often departments buy the low bid, the cheapest they can find. And ultimately that hard-earned wellness budget gets wasted in equipment that rusts and falls apart. BeaverFit's gear is designed to be used in the most extreme environments, whether it's the deserts of the Middle East or simply on the deck of a naval ship. So they are designed to not only be outside, but to be beaten up by some of the most elite operators on the planet. Now they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 10% off your purchase. So if you go to either the US site, which is graymangear.com, or the UK site, which is getbeaverfit.com, Use the code BTS10, that's BTS10, and you will get 10% off your purchase. If you want to hear more about this company, and I'm sure you do, listen to episode 477 with the original founder, Tom Beaver from the UK, or the founders of BeaverFit USA, Alex Rudhouse and Mike Taylor, on episode 457. Welcome to episode 488 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Jim Bernica. Now, Jim is not only a veteran firefighter, but has been an advocate for the cancer awareness element for most of his career. And there was a tragic irony when he himself was diagnosed with cancer. So we discuss a host of topics from his own journey in the fire service, mental health, cancer, the carcinogens that we're finding in our gear as far as the material that makes our gear now. And as you will hear, I get a little passion, I get a little wound up about this. Now, let me give you a backstory. Here in Florida, we've had a department that recently had a suicide within their fire station. That same department lost a firefighter who actually was from Scotland, the UK, same as me. Uh, to cancer just a couple of weeks prior to that. The same day I spoke to a police officer, Josie, who is currently fighting brain cancer, was a incredible tactical athlete and has now lost a hell of a lot of weight, uh, lost all her hair as she goes through chemo is fighting that. She's also coming on the show. But I want to preface this. If you have kids, don't let them listen to this because I swear probably more than I have in any of these episodes. But the point behind this is... I'm sick and tired of these men and women dying when I know there are so many elements that we can do to greatly reduce the chance of them getting sick or passing away. 
And yet, over and over again, a lot of these wellness initiatives are blocked, are pushed away, are poo-pooed. And I myself began this podcast after burying six firefighters from a multitude of these uh, diseases, mental and physical diseases. So when you hear this, like I said, I'm not apologizing. I'm just giving you the backstory. This is the frustration, the anger that drives me to do what I do. And when I'm speaking to a brother firefighter who, who himself is you know, fighting cancer at the moment and another sister fighting cancer at the moment and we're going to all these funerals, we have to change. You know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. So it's a slightly longer intro. I want to explain that there will be some more animated um, words from myself, but this is what I want. I want us all to be as angry about this issue as I am. And the more of these amazing guests I bring on, whether it's their personal stories, whether it's more from a scientific element, I hope the more educated you get and the more you push back against the way we've always done it and demand change. So with all that being said, I introduce to you, Jim Bernica. Enjoy. Well, Jim, I want to say welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. Well, thanks, James. It's an honor to actually be here with you on the other side. Yes. I finally made it. <laughs> now, well, thank you, firstly, for having me on uh, 25 Live. Um, did I even get that right? It's 25 Live, isn't it? All right, let me yeah, make you got it right. See, I'm, I'm second-guessing myself so many times. I'll write that down, 35 seconds. All right. Um, it, yeah, it was, it was such a great honor to be on your podcast and then we just met a couple weeks ago as well and had lunch together so um i'm very excited to bring your story to the audience i think you have you know some some interesting tangents in your own life between what was originally a passion and then obviously what became a personal experience as well so for people listening where on planet earth are we finding you today i would be located in exotic beaver creek ohio well, I'm actually flying to Ohio on Wednesday. I'll be in the uh, tropical North Canton, Ohio for a week. Yes, so. <laughs> very nice there. No, uh, Beaver Creek is a, a suburb of Dayton, just to kind of put things in perspective for everybody. Beautiful. All right. Well, as you know, I love to start chronologically. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. Um, I was actually born in Kettering, Ohio, which is yet another suburb of Dayton, um, but uh, grew up in East Aden. Parents still live there. I had a, uh, you know, both of them are, are still all right, doing well. And I've got two younger sisters. Uh, I got to do the math here. 30, uh, 39 and 36. Um, so yeah, grew up, went to uh, Catholic schools there, uh, which was ended up being kind of a waste of my parents' money. But that's probably a whole different story. Um, and you know, my my mother was a special ed teacher uh, in a, yet another suburb of Dayton, and my father was anything and everything. Uh, really, probably spent most of his time selling cars uh, for probably the longest duration. But sold insurance, so just was a salesman by trade, I guess. Uh, and uh, was, I mean, different jobs all the time. I mean, he held some jobs down for a couple of years. Sometimes he didn't, uh, he, he would have a box in his car just to pack up his shit. Just, 
that's just how he, you know, it was with him. So was he on the road quite a bit then? No, he was still local. Okay. But, um, um, between work and the bars, it, was, it definitely seemed like he wasn't home very often. Gotcha. All right. Well, then, obviously, neither of those are first responder professions specifically. Did you have any people in, in your extended family that were serving? No, no. Uh, and how I, I kind of even got into this was actually through the Century Bar softball team that my dad played for. It was uh, a bunch of guys that he went to high school with and grew up with. And a couple of them were firefighters. And when I was a teenager, I ended up doing some ride-alongs there uh, in, in Dayton. And, I mean, just fell in love from the, the very start. Just the camaraderie, the, the action. I mean, just it was, it's not your desk job, that's for sure. And I could, I, could, I could definitely, even when I was that young, I could view myself just getting along very well and having fun and getting paid for it. Now, with the curse of the ride along, did you get to see much when you were ride along initially, or were you one of these uh, typical ride alongs where basically nothing happens when they show up? Nothing happened. Yeah. <laughs> we, we we took a few runs, got got canceled, and uh, so I really just hung around the guys and experienced that. And we did a couple of things, like they put up their their ladder, and I got to climb that, but. Um, you know, that was, that was at least the first time, but I never really, even my ride alongs caught anything significant. Uh, it was just, the uh, hanging out with the guys was, I think really captivated me because I just realized like, this is not your typical job where you can do this and you can just have these friendships that go into work. What about sports? Were you an athlete when you were young? Played when I was little little it was the baseball soccer and all that stuff and uh high school was football and wrestling um but it wasn't not not that i was any really good at it i was much smaller then than i am now smaller in which way just size wise yeah i mean i was overall yeah right because it's interesting as well when i hear a lot of people that have um you know they played football in high school and they wrestled and it's an interesting um you know, parallel because one obviously is a very team heavy sport, whereas the other one, yes, you're on a team, but just like I used to compete in Taekwondo, you're still there individually on the mat for that moment. So when you look back now, would you think again, there was that kind of seeking tribalism that really resonated with you when you found that kind of family like feeling in the fire service? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because there's, you know, it's, it's putting on a different uniform. But it's, you know, you definitely have that team aspect to it. Um, but, yeah, you know, when you put on that uniform, that helmet, to me, it wasn't much different than putting on, you know, your fire PPE in your helmet. Absolutely. Well, what you, you went on the ride along. Were there any kind of career expectations that you had prior to that? Were you thinking of something else? No, no, because this was, I mean, this is still, I'm early teenagers doing this. And I knew from then that this is what I wanted to do. You know, I knew that I wasn't going to be an office guy. I knew I wasn't going to go to school, um, you know, four-year college, anything like that. So, you know, this job made sense because it was, you know, go to school, get a class, get your foot in the door, and you go from there. Uh, and I knew I wasn't going to be long to live, you know, stay at my parents' house. I was such a little asshole back then that – you know, the day I graduated was the, was the day I moved out and I moved out with a few other friends and, uh, 
uh, was really, I've been on my own since then. Um, so I went to school like that fall right away. And, you know, with, within a year I'm working, you know, I got, got my fire level one, which is what we need here in Ohio to start. And then I'm starting to work little part-time fire departments and kind of went from there really. Beautiful. So tell me about the standards in your department, because obviously we're going to talk about health and and wellness and fitness and cancer and mental health and all these things. What was the front door like for you? And obviously, you know, understanding that this was a couple of decades ago. So, you know, the environment wasn't the same as it is now. It was, you know what, it hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot. Uh, We were hardcore back then as far as you're going through half a year of rookie school. You're going through EMT, you're going through level one and level two fire. And uh, we actually ended up getting our fire inspection when we got out in the streets later on. They just, they wanted us out in the streets and to cut off that overtime as soon as possible back then, which is, so sometimes they've done the inspection class as part of rookie school. Sometimes they haven't. Um, and then at some point, once you get out and you get off probation, which we have a six-month probation, they would, back then at least, the first chance you had to go to medic school, they sent you to medic school. So, and, and they take, you know, being a, I don't want to say we're a large city, but we're not a small city, being, you know, going through an actual civil service process. You can walk in the door and it didn't matter if you had all these certificates already or none. They were going to train you and then they were going to teach you the Dayton way. So what about um, the bar as far as uh, strength and conditioning? Like, Were you expected to be in shape when you walked through the door? Yes, I would say so. And I mean, we were doing the the, the runs and uh, anything and everything kind of, you know, semi-military. Every day you were doing something physical. Um, even if even if you're going just through EMT school, that first part of the morning, you know, you're working your butt off and then you were doing, you know, hitting the books or doing hands on stuff. So when you were doing the ride along, you didn't get to see much. What were some of the calls, either acute emergent calls or maybe even some of the more mundane things like cleaning toilets? What were some of the things that hit you that you hadn't seen the ride along that you realized, oh, OK, this is this is the part of the job I didn't get to see? <laughs> probably the sleep part first of all you know i never spent the night so i got to see all the stuff during the day and uh go back home to my own bed which you know you learn 20 years later like that's a luxury <laughs> yeah you know especially you know not just my department but everywhere um that was that was definitely one big thing but um i just yeah i was a, we call it a wheel chalk where you show up you have a rider show up and you just they don't go anywhere. You don't see anything. So if we did go places, it was, you know, fire alarms here and there. It was medical emergencies, which a lot of times aren't emergencies. And, you know, but it was still, it was still, I could tell each day was different. It was an adventure every single day. It wasn't just show up, clock in and clock out. Yeah. So as you progress into your career, because obviously it's something that became very important to you, you had an event that kind of brought out the the subject of cancer. Um, so tell me about that initial story and then kind of lead me through how you decided to get involved within our profession specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I happened to get elected as our union special events guy. So that person 
is in charge of the retirees dinner, golf outings, and you know different events. And in other words, it was for me, especially back then, being 25, 26 years old, I was really kind of a party planner, if you will. Like, let's make some events, let's have some fun, um, let's drink some beers, all that kind of stuff. Well, one of my friends that still works with me, his son, he was just five years old. His name was Gavin, and he was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma, which is pretty rare cancer, especially in a five-year-old. It's a it's a bone cancer. It was found in the back of his neck, and you know, I I wanted to. I just felt compelled to do something. So you know, let's let's do an event. Let's do a fundraiser, and so we we put on a, a couple different concerts. Uh, for whatever, you know, I, I love music and that was just an easy thing to do to set up an event at one of the local bars, have some bands play pro bono and raise some money. And we, we raised a ton of money, uh, too much money. It's a, it's a, it was a good problem to have. So, you know, when it came down to it, uh, Gavin's dad, Sean was just like, I, I have insurance. I don't, I don't need money. Like you need to put this money somewhere else. And so we kind of split it up into different organizations regarding cancer, um, childhood cancer. And the other one we just kind of came across on just a Google search. And this is, you know, we're dating back to 2006. And then the Firefighter Cancer Support Network had just started. And so, you know, we read through all that and we were like, well, we're firefighters and this is cancer. It makes sense. Let's send some money to them. And. You know, we, we made that call and, and the founder and president, Mike DeBron, uh, was, I mean, again, he just started this organization and all of a sudden you have some random department in Dayton, you know, Ohio, giving him money. And he actually came and, uh, live in person, accepted a check and told us his story. And, you know, I, I felt, I mean, he just, the guy is just so passionate and I mean, he makes you, he'll make you a believer and, uh, it wasn't long after that that I just happened to be going to his area. He, you know, he's an L.A. County firefighter, and I was going to California because I was in the process of seeing all 30 major league ballparks. So, again, you got to remember, young, single, no kids, too much money. I'm going to go and do crazy things. So he picked me up from the airport, and we spent the time together. And, you know, before you know it, he talked me into being in Ohio Basically, chapter, starting the Ohio chapter of the Firefighter Cancer Support Network. So that's kind of how I got involved in all that stuff. Well, tell me more about it because I had Keith Tyson on. who's one of my very first guests, actually, I believe, and he was our Florida representative. So tell me about what they, you know, his his origin story and then what they were trying to do around the U.S. So, you know, when I started, I remember asking Mike, like, all right, yeah, that's fine. I'll be your Ohio guy, but what do you want me to do? And he was like, do whatever you want to do. You know, it was such a new thing. There wasn't a playbook to go out of. And, and just my attitude was, well, I, we need to spread the word. We need to talk about this cancer stuff because at that time they're just, they're just, this wasn't a thing. Nobody talked about it. It was absolutely taboo. It was, um, the elephant in the room, whatever you want to say, people just, there wasn't the studies that they are now. And, you know, it was kind of my objective to go throughout the state and just spread the word and let people become aware of how significant of a problem this is. 
get this get it on the radar is I think what my original intent was. And I was able to team up with, you know, our Ohio professional firefighters union, our Ohio fire chiefs, and they really helped me just navigate the state and, and kind of just start spreading the news. And it wasn't long after that before um, I ended up becoming vice president. It was actually, I think, my 30th birthday that they they gave me that nod. Uh, for whatever I was doing, I guess it was working because the, you know, the idea behind that was, okay, now you know, do what you're doing, but try to get the other states to do it as well. Kind of train all these new recruits through these, these states with the Firefighter Cancer Support Network and, and just have them kind of go off of your playbook and spread that word and get, just get the information out there that this is a problem. So with there being you know, a taboo topic and obviously mental health and addiction are still in that category as well, but um, when you started penetrating all these departments and organizations and unions, what were some of the numbers that were coming out? Were people having a realization that this was far more of a an epidemic than we realized? I, I think they were, but they, they had a hard time accepting it. The study that we went off of back then was the Grace LeMasters University of Cincinnati study. So the fact that the study was in our own state, I thought had value to it. And I mean, we used that study for the longest time. Um, so that that helped sell it in the state, but at the same time, I, and I think, and you know, you know how we are. Our attitude as firefighters were still, and I think what I saw a lot of is, yeah, that happened to them or happened to so and so that I worked with, but it's not going to happen to me. It's just not. Now, obviously, you you ended up forming your own organization. But before we do, even back then, what was some of the the factors that were being looked at as far as the causes of, you know, these firefighter deaths. And obviously these extend, extend far outside of our profession. Sure. Now, I, I mean, I can remember some of our literature even because the science just wasn't there yet. Some of our own literature for the firefighter cancer support network talked about when we're doing overhaul, rem- being able to remove your SCBA after CO and your, your HCN were within the normal limits. And I mean, so we really had that misnomer that when that's within normal limits, everything else was going to be within normal limits too. And it was safe to take off your pack and breathe whatever's in there. And it wasn't, you know, we had that information out there and actually talking to NIOS back then. And this is, oh, I'm going to say maybe I'm guessing 10, 11, 12 years ago was when that we changed and NIOS was, we had a meeting with them and they were like, you idiots. <laughs> if there's no there's no relation between all these other chemicals and CO and HCN. Like you need to get rid of that idea and just you need to be wearing your SCBA from the start to finish. You're telling me and that so, asbestos mitigators don't just take off respirators once the uh, CO levels are low? Apparently they were. <laughs> <laughs> apparently. But you know, so we made that change and it just the more Studies that that happened that came out the more we realized what we can do to prevent this um, I think a big part of This whole cancer prevention started with the 2013 taking action against cancer in the fire service white paper um, That was the first time that we really had all the different uh, Members of the fire service the researchers the the firefighters themselves the you know the chiefs the the union that everybody sat down together in Indianapolis, it was after one of the FDICs, 
and we really composed that paper in which it spelled out the problem, you know, how significant this threat truly is. And then we really talked about for the first time what we can try to do to prevent these actions, uh, you know, the chance of getting cancer. So we had, we, we basically made at the very back of it 11 steps. And we also include your, you know, how important your annual physicals are. And for the longest time, I mean, those, all of those are still absolutely true. It's just with more research, we've been able to really build onto those. Now, back then, because, you know, this is a, you know, a topic that I like to talk about a lot. How much acknowledgement was there for the shift work being a carcinogen? Because that's something that I've witnessed in my career through the fire service. The mental health, oh, it's all, it's what we see. It's what we see. Bullshit. And then with cancer, oh, it's what you're exposed to. Okay. Well, that doesn't explain my last apartment that hardly ever saw a fire that lost people year after year after year. So to me, it's like, you know, blaming headgear and boxing for brain trauma and, and negating the fact that it's probably from the guy punching you in the face that actually is the real <laughs> underlying element, you know. So was there any any focus at all on the resilience of the individual and their overall health, or was it still myopically looking at carcinogen exposure? It was all about exposure. And we never we never discussed shift work. I mean that's that's something that's really just came across the last few years as a thing, at least where, where I'm at, I mean, or, well, my department, maybe I was aware of it beforehand, but back when I was, you know, a young punk firefighter, that was never talked about. None of this stuff was, it was, you know, and you can call it, um, you know, looking back now being naive, I guess. Um, I don't think anybody was keeping anything from it, but it's just, it wasn't, there wasn't the studies, there wasn't the awareness, and there was nobody standing up and, and preaching about this because this was just like mental health was taboo. This was taboo too. We were used to, you know, the dirty you were, the more, I mean, you had to be dirty or else you didn't do shit in that fire, you know? So that was a whole batch of honor, you know, going back, you know, you didn't take a shower, you, you laid in this stuff, um, you kept your gear, especially when you're a young punk kid where I'm at, you're, you're on the road, you know, you're going station to station a lot of times early on. So this stuff was in our cars, our SUVs. Um, you know, there's, it's, it's different now, but going back then, um, we just didn't, we weren't aware of it. And so, you know, I, there were a lot of looking back now, hindsight, I and many other firefighters, not just here, but everywhere else. I mean, we committed a lot of sins that we didn't really know were sins back then. Yeah, well, see, that was what was a, a huge aha moment for me. I was listening to, I think it was Barbell Shrugged, and I heard Dr. Kurt Parsley on there for the first time. And this is probably five, five and a half years ago now. And I've been in exercise physiology and, you know, in the academic space and being a, a coach and an athlete and, you know, obviously a, a firefighter and a lifeguard and all. So in, in the realm that, you know, wellness should, should be well acknowledged. And what really kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, really pissed me off was if my very, you know, low intelligent brain could wrap my head around the shift work listening to a barbell shrug podcast, why the hell wasn't, weren't our, you know, health and safety gurus that get paid all this money and get all this research and all this time off to, <laughs> to represent our profession? Why weren't these pieces put together? years ago and it's not blaming now it's happened it is what it is but uh, you're right i only kind of acknowledged the shift work when i got educated myself 
but the sleep medicine world you know the the naval community the airline community the trucking community they've understood this for years and years so what baffles me is why these gurus in our profession weren't talking about this years ago yeah it's i don't know it's i i think there was even stigma with that um you know this the sleep and not just the shift work but the recovery when you get home uh Nobody talked about that back then. It was common to just power through your days, just, you know, and then go out and just keep powering through it and, and just, you know, work 24, 36, 48 hour shifts in a, in a busy place. You know, this wasn't a, you know, where, where I work is not a place where you can ever expect to get sleep. You expect to not get sleep. And with with just age and and knowledge and just also just realizing that you know I need to come home I need to set aside that first morning to recover um, or else you know the rest of my day and the next day is shot like yeah I have to make that priority when I get off shift yeah well Anaheim when I worked there people would regularly work seventy two sometimes even ninety six which was the cap if there wasn't an emergency but you think about that four days and these were Anaheim stations, apart from the East End, the rest of them were running a lot. So 72, 96 hours with little to no sleep. I mean, when you look back now, it's you know horrendous. But I again, I will say at that point, I didn't know any any different either. Other than if you ask any of us, a we hated that longer shift, and b we knew damn well that we couldn't even see straight by the time we drove home that day. It's it's irresponsible for not only the fire fighter itself. But to the citizens that they're protecting, to have somebody that that's sleep deprived, that that is, you know, is is going to be the one showing up for them or their loved ones. Absolutely. Well, you spoke about the white paper. So before I, you know, drag the conversation down the sleep deprivation route yet again, um, tell me about the, you know, the, the, the facts and figures of exposure. And then also, you know, when, when they'd finally done this study, what were the numbers that they were looking at in the fire service? Oh, back then, I think that, you know, the number we talked about was one out of every three. Like you can look, you can be with three people in a row. You can look to your left, you can look to your right, and including yourself, one of them is going to be diagnosed with cancer. We didn't, again, we, back then, we're going just off of the UC study. The NIOSH study hadn't come out yet. That's really what we hang our hats on now with the, um, you know, 14% increase of being diagnosed. Um was it a 14% increase of dying, 9% increase of being diagnosed compared to the general public. So that's a, that's a, a common number or numbers that we use now. That's not something that we were even had access to uh, back then we were doing this white paper. So we just knew that it was prevalent and we needed to do something about it. But we also knew that the NIOSH study was being worked on and other studies uh, such as the Nordic study was being worked on as well. So we knew all this stuff was coming. And even since then, now there's just more and more and more and more prevalent to the point in which um, IARC, the the International Agency for Research on Cancer, is going to be looking at firefighters as an occupation a year from now to determine if that is just our occupation would be a known or probable carcinogen. That's huge. So there's been that much research over the years to where they're actually going to sit down and really look. And uh, if that comes out, I know it, every state, every providence is different. 
but it'll help a lot with presumptive cancer cases in certain states. Yeah. Well, I think that's just it. So again, I, you know, coming into this field and starting this organization and getting to talk to some amazing people, you look at the presumptive laws, you look at the impact of this profession on our men and women. And the fact that we even need presumptive is, is disgusting. Like for example, in the military, you know, if, if you and I get hurt during combat, well, it's an assumed, you know, element. And not only will hopefully you have the care that either puts you back, you know, in service again or retires you out, you'll also have care the rest of your life. And then you look at the fire service and law enforcement and corrections and dispatch, you know, it's not, it's not like that at all, you know. Once you're gone, you're gone, and they're just going to wash their hands of you. And it's not like it's some sort of malicious thing, but it's still something that needs to be changed. Um, with, uh, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, with the uh, the clean cab concept, so I had Stefan and David from Healthy Firefighters on, the, the Swedish firefighters. Um, it makes perfect sense to me with the exposure side as well. And that's just it. It's not one or the other. It's all these elements. And you know, the badge of honor of being covered in soot. We've all been there. We've all thrown snot rockets in the shower and seen how black they are. Now you look back and go, oh, my God, you know, we. <laughs> why didn't that make sense back then? So with the exposure, with the carcinogens, what are some of the... Uh, accepted uh, areas of exposure that we have to change that are absolutely correlated with some of these cancers? Hmm. So there's some exposures that we just can't prevent. Um, even if we're wearing our full PPE and our SCBA, the reality of it is we step in a fire, those carcinogens can still go throughout our gear and get on onto our body and we can absorb that into our skin. So it, it, regardless of what fire you go into, you're going to end up having this stuff on your skin. You're going to absorb it. And that's why it gets, it's so important to just decon your gear and decon yourself as soon as possible. Get into the station, get in that good quality shower as soon as possible, changing clothes. Um, that That is so important because, again, a lot of the other stuff now we know how to prevent, but that is not one of them. Our gear has not... Um, gone to the point it hasn't evolved to where it really truly prevents all these chemicals carcinogens and then our gear itself and i'm not sure when or where you want to talk about this but our gear ourselves now is a carcinogen <laughs> was that okay that was my that was a lead-in see i'm not sure where you're going all the time but it's good so our gear ourselves, what we're wearing it's it's got these chemicals and carcinogens in it so and that's you know so you can't avoid it it's you know, you're supposed to be able to fight a fire, but you can't fight a fire in the clothes that you and I are wearing right now. So let's so. let's expand on that then, because that's something that, you know, you and I talked about when we had uh, lunch a couple of weeks ago. There, there are all these different layers. And to me, if we want to change the fire service completely, we look at the rest and recovery of the firefighter first. That, sh to me, should be the very, very primary thing after obvious decon, which we should all have taken that lesson now. Apart from the the oppositions that you know are just not coming from anywhere that makes any sense whatsoever, um, but as you mentioned, you know we've had the the chemicals in the gear, the PFAS. Um, we I see uh, people talking about the chemicals in the the firefighting foam also being potentially carcinogenic. So these also need to be part of the conversation. So tell me, tell me again how that was initially discovered and what the connections are between that compound in our gear and what they're seeing now in our ill health. 
Okay, so the, these chemicals are probably best known as Teflon. And they've been around since the 50s and 60s. Uh, they were military used, but more than anything, they're probably known for, you know, our Teflon pans, what we cook with. But they're basically waterproofing. Uh, they're also, even last week, there's a study that came out that showed how much this is in our cosmetics, you know, for the lipsticks, the eyeliners, all that kind of stuff. So everybody in the world has these chemicals in their in their blood now. And uh, these these chemicals have been in our gear for an awfully, awfully long time. Now, the, the original one, the PFOA, otherwise known as C8, and I'm going to try my hardest to not, you know, lose anybody here. That was in our fire gear up until 2015. And then they, um, with with all the work that Rob Allot, who's an attorney from Cincinnati, did going against DuPont, um, they were able, they, they basically figured out that these chemicals are harmful. They're causing different cancers, different illnesses. And so what the chemical companies did is they just basically switched the chemistry of their, this chemical. And they made it, instead of eight carbons they have, and now we're going to have six carbons. But don't worry, it's a completely different chemical. Nothing bad is going to happen. And so all of our fire gear after that now has either C6 or C4 in it, otherwise known as Gen X. And uh, it's, again, it's still in our gear. And it's actually in our gear. It's based off of an NFPA standard, a a test that that was set up for this. Um, I mean, that's kind of the short and sweet of how we got, at least in our fire gear. But it's also, by the way, it's important to know that this stuff is in our foam. It's in our AFFF Class B foam. So uh, think about all these different uh, military fire departments or just your know, regular fire departments that have that has used foam over the years and it's contaminated so many different water systems, you know, throughout our country and even beyond. So you take these chemicals and, you know, now, and that's why, again, probably why everybody has these chemicals in them. A big part of it is because they're in a lot of water systems. We wear this stuff, we drink this stuff, we eat this stuff. It, and it's a, it's called a forever chemical. It's not going away. And it's caused, causing, again, all these different cancers and diseases. So what a, what a, what's the history as far as how do they connect that particular compound and cancer? There was, you know, the, the best thing I could, I could to, to kind of show everybody what's going on if they're interested in this, you can kind of go two different routes, really three different routes. If you want to watch, and I know this is probably what you get to later on, but if you want to watch a documentary, I advise you to watch The Devil We Know. If you want to watch a movie, watch Dark Waters, which is basically a movie version. You know, Hollywood ended up uh, about the documentary, but the book is called Exposure by Rob Allott. It's it's all the same thing. It's all about the same guy, but there was a a farm in Parkersburg, West Virginia, in which they... uh, the farmer had a bunch of cows and these cows were dying and he called anybody and everybody EAP. I mean, just anybody to come there and check it out. And they didn't know why his cows were dying. And they ended up getting a hold of this attorney, Rob Ballot, And he basically figured out after doing tons and tons of research and diving into these documents that it was this chemical called PFOA. And they ended up having this big suit in which they ended up doing blood work on, I believe it was like 69,000 citizens of that area. It's the, it's like the largest 
um, study where they've actually collected blood that's out there. And they were able to determine from that study, um, it was, I think, two different cancers and several different diseases that were prevalent just based off of that chemical. Have you had him on your show yet? Uh, Rob Lott? Yeah. I have, yeah. That's what I thought. So for people listening, which episode? I mean, this sounds like someone I should get on as well, but which? do you remember which episode? It's it's uh I don't see I don't have a, a library of like four hundred stu- or four hundred different uh, interviews or anything like that so it's I don't know what number offhand but it's um probably early on okay beautiful I, he he's close enough to where I you know I drove down to see him and we did it live which was the where I learned a lesson where you you don't put the mic on the table and then you you know where he would start pounding it <laughs> <laughs> I had people tell me afterwards like I thought my I thought my tire blew. Yeah, that's I've had the same thing, and also the uh, the wire on the headphones. You know, they start moving around, it starts crackling, and you're like, "Oh God!" You know, it's, it's hard to tell someone in the middle of a passionate monologue, "Hey, can you stop moving?" <laughs> yes. or, or slamming your hand on the table. <laughs> yes. So he's been, and he actually he's doing a um, class action, like U.S. class action suit right now, and he actually has. A firefighter from the Cincinnati, which is the the plaintiff, you know, to to get something done with with for all of us because we all have these chemicals in it um, to get basically more testing and and more research because these are so prevalent amongst us. I mean, if you have a kid, congratulations, they have these chemicals in their body; they're born with them. Now you mentioned about the you know tens of thousands of people they did the blood tests on. So, what did they discover? How was that tied into the illness with the cows? They just realized that the same illness with the cows uh, was from the cows drinking the water, which was, you know, the same water that the citizens were drinking, too. Gotcha. All right. Well, then, one of the reasons why this is such a pertinent conversation is you yourself found yourself on on a journey with cancer as well. So, um, at what point did, did you get that initial diagnosis? And then walk me through that. You've been an advocate for this very issue in the first responder space, and now you find yourself actually a patient of it. Yeah, it's, it's I guess ironic would be the word, wouldn't it? Yeah, so I was sitting uh, actually just upstairs from where I am right now is our, our dinner table. And this was a little over a year ago. My wife was, we're just eating dinner across from each other. And, and she was looking at me and, she, you know, funny look. And I'm like, what? And she's like, the right side of your neck is bigger than your left. And I said, you're crazy. She said, no, I'm serious. And I'm like, no way. She's looking in the mirror. And I go, and I look in my mirror and I don't see anything. Nothing different. I, it looks symmetrical to me. You know, she's, she's a nurse. You know, she's taught to look at all this kind of different things. And she it's like, something's weird. And I said, I came back and I think I, you know, you could go two different ways with this. You could either blow her off, which I actually think most of us would have done. And that's not what I did. I ended up saying, I'll get it checked out. And this is right. I mean, this is right when COVID was starting, like where things were going crazy when everybody was scared to touch doorknobs. I mean, it's. You know, so I ended up making an appointment and ended up being virtual and the, you know, they ended up saying, well, let's get an ultrasound. Let's see where we're at. And so I did ultrasound a little over a year ago and they found a really small nodule on my thyroid, but they said it's so small. We're not worried about it yet. Let's, let's check back and see what goes on. And so 
we made a, you know, fast forward a year and make another appointment as a follow up. And at that point in time, they go, no, oh, well, it's, it's actually gotten bigger. It's like twice its size. Let's, let's do a fine needle biopsy. Um, and I, I'm able to somehow get that scheduled the very next day. And not only do they do that, that that next day, but the the doctor, I mean, he pulls out the sample, he puts it on a a slide, you know, something out of a chemistry lab, and excuses himself and looks it under the microscope, and like five minutes later, comes back and he he tells me, yeah, you got, um, he has it everything written out, and he just says, I'm I'm sorry to tell you, but uh, you do have cancer. Uh, it is uh, a common cancer. It's the most common thyroid cancer. It's uh, papillary thyroid carcinoma. It's uh, the most common. It's the least aggressive. Uh, you will need surgery. And that's basically what we're left with uh, from the appointment. And that was uh, April 22nd. So tell me about that first, because, I mean, that's such a harrowing diagnosis. Even if you're told it's one of the less aggressive and, you know, most common, it really doesn't matter because you just heard the word cancer. So coming from the, again, the kind of 10,000 foot view of, of being an advocate in this space, you know, what, what was that journey? How, what changed from hearing that moving forward? You know, I felt as if, you know, before the diagnosis, I thought that uh, I'm pretty prepared. I know who to call. I know what to do. Um, I'm When somebody else gets diagnosed, they reach out to me. And I guide them through the process of, of getting care and, and getting workers comp. And just, I mean, I, I'm one of the people, you know, first phone calls that's throughout the state, people call me. So I thought I, I thought I would be prepared and in some aspects I was, but nothing, there was no way to prepare for the mental aspect of this of hearing those words and just going, Oh fuck, you know? And, and this is even in my head, James, like I knew, I knew that I was going to get the call sometime. I didn't know when, but I, I knew all the dumb shit I did earlier on. Um, it would catch up to me at some point in time. Um, but even knowing that it still was, uh, it was, you know, kicking the balls. For sure. Um, I, you know, my wife was with me. Um, and I remember leaving and just my boys were at my parents' house and she went there and picked them up. And I just said, I just want to go home. And I didn't, I didn't call. I didn't want to tell my mother. I didn't want to call her. I had her do it. I was chicken shit. I didn't want to say. And what I realized uh, the next few days is it's it's hard to say that word. It's hard to tell people you have cancer, even if, if it is you know a good prognosis. You know, I'm here talking to you today. I'm a week and a half away from going back to work and shaving this glorious beard that only you can see and nobody else can. <laughs> but it, it is because when you say that, like there's – it, there's nothing that good is going to come out of that. It It's a hurtful word to that individual. It's like, you know, because they instantly, instantly, it doesn't matter who they are, worry. 
it strikes fear into them um, because they care about you too. So, you know, what's going to happen? It, it, it's, it's hard to do. I had, I had to have my wife uh, tell several people because I just, I couldn't, I physically couldn't say it for, for whatever reason. And she had to do it. She was so damn tough out of all of this. And, um, it got, it got better at, you know, after time a little bit, but even still like, I, you know, I, I, I never sat down, you know, I never, we never talked to then four, four year old now five, but we did talk to my seven year old and that sucked. Cause like there is no real true book that's out there that tells you how to do that or prepares you. Like, you know, it could tell you, you know, doctors and, and have somebody with you. And I mean, there's, there's guidance out there. The, the FCSN actually, they sent a toolbox to me that was so helpful. And I recommend anybody who gets diagnosed to reach out to them. They could set you up with another, you know, this is, I'm, I'm going to plug them. Um, they could set you up another firefighter that's been through that same diagnosis. And that, that truly is, is helpful. And the book they gave me was a great guidebook, even though I knew a lot of it, there was a lot of it that I didn't know that was helpful. So I recommend you making that call. 866-499, wait, 866-994-FCSN. That's the Firefighter Cancer Support Network. Yep, yep, that's a, a number I'll never forget. Uh, just kind of like growing up, when we actually used to have to memorize phone numbers instead of just looking at your phone. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I don't even know my <laughs> yeah. own families now. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, that that first week, for sure, it was the unknown, it was just, uh, you know, waiting to actually talk to people and figure out what your options were and how significant this was. And, uh, the unknown, um, makes you just kind of go everywhere mentally. Uh, so that, that, I mean, that sucked. And it was, this whole thing has been a roller coaster. Like even after the surgery, it was like, Hey, we got it all where we think you're good. And, you know, we'll do our ultrasounds of blood work and, You'll go back to work and you're good to go. And then you find out, you know, you get a call two weeks later and they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, this wasn't uh, one of your lymph nodes. And then so, you you know, I start thinking again, like, oh, shit, well, did it go anywhere else? It was on the move. You know, does it change things? And, you know, um, well, I think going through all this stuff I've learned and what my advice would be to everybody else out there, if you do get diagnosis, you got to be your own advocate if you don't like the answers that are given to you, go and seek, you know, other opinions until you figure out what course is going to work best for you and your family. You know, when I saw you in Florida, it's a couple of days later, I drove <laughs> even further down to the University of Miami and met a doctor there just to figure out where am I at? What do I need? Do I need to do anything different? Do I need to stay the course? And, and they were, they were awesome. Um, so you just have to, you have to do your own homework and figure out things. I feel like so many of us would have just went to the first doctor and would have accepted anything they would have said. Whatever you say, I trust you. I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. And that is to me, that's not the right answer for you. I think you, you have to talk to multiple people. You have to just have all the options on the table and, and, and make a informed decision. You know, it's, you know, when you're dealing with 
cancer. I mean, it's you're dealing with your livelihood. And so you have to just make an educated decision and have all the cards on the table for you to do that. And that's, I think that's what I ended up doing. Um, but it was, it was tedious. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, but that's, that gives you, that puts the power back in your hands. And I think that's something that I see from cancer diagnosis in general, what I see a lot. And, you know, I've, I've, no firefighters that are recovering after chemo. I know, you know, as a police officer, Josie, who's going through it right now. Um, and we're fixers, you know, and when that autonomy is taken away and you're told, right, you're going to have chemo, you're going to have radiation therapy, you're going to have this, you're going to have that. Um, I feel like a lot of these people lose power the same way as in COVID. You're told, well, just, just stay in your house and shut the fuck up and we'll let you know when you come out. You know, that's not how it should be. It should be, Here's all these things you can do to make yourself more resilient whilst we go through this pandemic. That's the way it should have been framed as I hit my own microphone. Um, but so with that, you know, you were told, oh, we need surgery. Was there any discussion on, well, hey, let's talk about your sleep. Let's talk about nutrition and your movement practice and your mindful practice and all these other areas that we can boost the homeostasis in your body and therefore give your immune system more chance to fight this? Not a thing. Not, not a thing. No, nothing, nothing was ever said. Um, you, you know, if I may, I'll, I'll go down this rabbit hole if you, if you allow me. Please. I, I, I wanted to tell you, like, you know, I spoke earlier about there's two different ways I could have went when my wife was saying, hey, your neck is bigger on one side and the other. Um, there's two different ways. I could have I, I could have went and got checked out like I did or I could have blown her off, which I do believe I probably would have. Um, the only why I didn't was because my friend – uh, Mark Ryan, and he was a, a Columbus firefighter. He had a spot on his back. His wife told him, get that checked out, get that checked out, get that checked out. And he, he just ignored her. He said, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And he finally, he, you know, he said, make an appointment. I'll go, I'll go get uh, checked out. So he made that appointment. He went in and that, you know, um, dermatologist checked him out, excused herself, came back five minutes later with a car to the Ohio State James Cancer Center, which is the same place I ended up going. And he said, well, what is this? And they said, you got an appointment there. And he's like, when? And they said, right now. And sure as shit, he goes there, gets a biopsy, and comes back, stage four melanoma. And so one of his, you know, his thought process and what he preached about to, and I've heard him talk about this several times, and it was just always in the back of my head when, when, I, when this whole thing happened with me was, uh, if he would have went and got checked out when his wife first started telling him, he would have caught his cancer probably early on. Be a different stage. Wouldn't it be a terminal cancer? You know, the guy's got five kids, 35 years old when he's diagnosed. Um, you know, he would still probably be working as a Columbus firefighter instead of being medically retired. So having known that story, when my wife... Um, you told me this. That's why I was like, all right, I trust you. I'll get checked out. It's a little bit of an inconvenience, but I'll get checked out. It was because of him that I was like, okay. And I've been telling his story to everybody too. So um, that's part of my, when I go out and preach about this stuff, I include him. So I really felt it was important to practice what I preach. And I, I went through that and obviously it worked out. And I caught this early because otherwise there's no signs and symptoms of me. I would have kept going. This would have kept growing it was on the move and it, it would have been a probably a, it would have been a different ending but when when i, I called him and i told him this and i told him 
dude, it's because of you that I caught this early. Like you made a difference. Like I, I felt the obligation to share with him, like you made a huge impact on, on my family and myself. And just, and of course he doesn't, he's like, ah, whatever, dude, he blows me off. But uh, you know, that's, that's kind of what he does. Blow, <laughs> blow people <laughs> off. But, uh, no, uh, I love the guy. And, and he told me, he's going through this stuff. He said, you, you, these doctors work for you. It's not the other way around, which is where you were going with that. Like you tell them, you know, what you want to do, you do your own homework. And if it doesn't work, then you go somewhere else. And that's, that's really what I did. you know, after I got several different opinions before the surgery and then afterwards, cause I, I had really no guidance afterwards of what to do. That's when I got on the phone with Cleveland clinic and actually did a telehealth visit. That's when I went to the university of Miami. That's when I went locally here and all those different appointments together, they're all different puzzle pieces and they all came together to really truly paint the picture of what I'm dealing with, what my options are, where I should go from here. But that's that was a lot of work. It's a lot of homework, a lot of miles, a lot of time, just stress. But I feel so much better moving forward now that I've done that. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that for a start, because I mean I think that's an important story. And actually I had a kind of similar event with myself where I had a mole on my back that was growing and my wife badgered me. And again, that's the problem. We see it ourselves and yet we can be the most stubborn, you know, patients as well. But I did go and get a dermatology appointment. Actually, I get annual checkup now, which I think is a good idea for anyone to get. You know, we think about these annual wellness. Um, I love the life scan. That's a great one. But I think dermatology is another good one to go get checked out every year. Um, but it ended up just being a mole. Ironically, it fell off a few weeks ago. So I guess it was just angry at me and decided to leave. <laughs> Maybe there were so many carcinogens that I just couldn't deal with it anymore. Um, but no, we're joking apart. I mean, I, I listened as well. My wife was persistent. She was, you know, near aggressive about you got to get this checked out. So you, this is an important story, I think, for our spi- spouses or friends or boyfriends or girlfriends or whoever it is to also stay on us because we do have that you know, that hard headedness. I mean, that's what makes us good at what we do. But we also have to have someone to pull the reins and be like, no, you know, seriously, you need to go get this checked out. And I think with your wife being a nurse, that added a little bit more to her assessment of you. Had your wife been an accountant, maybe you wouldn't have listened to her as much and you would have, you know, maybe wouldn't have this conversation now. So I think that's an excellent cautionary tale. So thank you for sharing that. Sure. Absolutely. So with with that and and in the book i wrote about my back injury and having to become my own advocate after the horrendous <laughs> medical assessment that i got from that and i ended up using great minds to heal my back completely um what were some of the things that you did aside from getting um you know multiple medical experts involved as far as the lifestyle changes and, and things that that um would improve your chances of overcoming this well, it really, mentally, this kind of stuff, when you get those kind of words, it hits the reset button. And it, it really, it pulls you back down to the ground floor and you kind of got to figure out, all right, you know, where do you go from here? What do you do? What are you doing right? What, what can you do better? What are you doing wrong? What, it, it was an absolute reset button for me. And then I went with work-life balance and also just, you know, the quality of my life is I think what it all comes down to. 
what's important. You know, I still have four and a half years left. Um, what, what am I going to do? How am I going to get through that, that time to where, um, where I can continue to try to reduce my exposure as much as possible and get out that door and just enjoy, you know, life, enjoy retirement. Um, I already know now from being off, I can grow a good beard. I like, I mean, I, I, this is, this is a good life. It's, it's nice to not really have to clock in and have to go in random person's house that you just would never go into on, on your own. Um, but you know, I know that the physically I'm a big guy. I need to figure that out. I need to do something. Uh, cause if it's not going to be cancer, it's going to be something cardiac that, that gets me. So, um, eating, eating better, um, working out, you know, right behind me in this room. Um, I've got no excuses. I have all sorts of workout stuff that, you know, I don't, I have to go downstairs. That's all I have to do. And and it's all here waiting for me. There's no even getting in the car, going to the gym, doing any of that stuff. It's literally in my basement and I just need to actually use it. Um, so it, it's just, it's, when it comes down to it, I think it's the word would be reprioritizing things. And I guess that's two words. <laughs> we'll pretend it's one. <laughs> um, but I think that's an, an important perspective and it's not talked about a lot. Like, I mean, the, the incredible um, benefits that a lot of people have seen when they've gone to retreats. And, and on that retreat, you know, they've, they've done yoga. They've, they've eaten extremely cleanly. You know, I mean, the, the sleep is probably really good. And so they're addressing all the other areas. Now they may still be on chemo. I don't know. They may still have just had surgery, but there's so many other areas that we can, um, you know, uh, attack is the wrong word, but we, we can change. We can improve alongside, even if we do end up using some sort of medical modality. And what, scares me is is you know as you said you're going back on shift and so to me that's going right back into one of the carcinogens again so i hope that you're able to find this in your department but i think it's an important conversation for everyone if we have a responder who is just returning from a cancer diagnosis i i hope the departments will understand you know the the impact of that on the individual and maybe try and find you know the training or you know inspections or whatever it is an opportunity for that person to return to service but maybe not doing the night shifts specifically because you know it it worries me so much that the very thing that's going to keep healing that person is now taken away when they go back on shift that is that is so true and it's something i haven't really even honestly thought about like i've been just worried about just going back in general and because I've had to, I've had to take things easy. Um, I didn't realize <laughs> it's fun. Like you don't realize how much your neck and your throat has to do with the rest of your body. Like I've been just limited in what I can lift and what I can do. And it's just, I'm going to be kind of thrown out there and, and go and, and be expected to perform as usual. And it's, you know, that is uh it's, it's honestly a little terrifying. But it's it's stuff that I've done before too with other injuries. But but this one, yeah, it's it's a little bit different. Um, you know, I had the um, there are forty hour jobs that are available. You know, we again we're a big enough department where we have firefighters sprinkled here and there that can do that. And that's 
that's something that I wasn't really interested beforehand that I would, I would think I would be more inclined, uh, now because at this point in time, when you, when you go through this, you start thinking about just about self-preservation and it, and, and it just, you can't help but think about it. It's, uh, it's there. It's in your face. You, you know, I had, after my surgery, I had such a hard time falling asleep. I just, I was so sore. I couldn't get comfortable. And I also, my mind was just racing and it was just all sorts of different thoughts. But, but I think absolutely that that's been persistent now is the self preservation, getting through this time I have and getting on the other side. Now, with the mental health element, another thing that, you know, is I've been educated again for the last few years, really through Sebastian Junger's work initially, but you fell in love with the tribal element of the fire service at the beginning of your career. Now, just with my back injury, I experienced the same thing. You're taken from that tribe, and now you're going through surgery and lying, you know, wide awake, trying to sleep, and, and then the, you've got those thoughts. And the healing element of the fire station table, you know, is not there anymore. You don't have that tribe to lean into. What was the mental health impact of being taken off shift? First of all, the the vast majority of members that I work with, and, and it's not just even where I work, but all over the place, have have been amazing people reaching out checking I, I know i told people like just make me laugh send me send me some funny memes and i was getting some great stuff <laughs> all all from all over the place that just it made me giggle that are completely inappropriate but made me giggle nonetheless <laughs> uh and it i i i definitely it was uh i felt i felt loved um to put it simply i i put out you know for my own show uh, it was the first time I did this where it was it was just me. Several times I just talked, just what's going on, what's the latest in my diagnosis, what's the plan, and they were pretty short, just self interviews, updates. But it was um, they were actually different. I think depending on the mood. I mean, there's some where I'm, you could tell like I'm, you know, ready to fight this, and you know I got this. And then there's other ones where I'm I'm pissed off because I know I'm gonna end up fighting this in workers' comp and just all sorts of a range of emotions. Um, you know, but mentally, um, my wife helped me out. I I talked to a clinician throughout this, just this whole process because just trying to sort out all these different feelings. Um, you know, I'm not I've never been afraid to talk to somebody and just work things out, but just talking to somebody that actually under you know is trained in this i thought was was helpful and it was easy for me to track that down being our peer support coordinator um finding you know people that i'm comfortable with just really just venting at this point to them uh, of my thoughts and my feelings and and where do i go from here and what do i do um because it it just again i, I don't know how many times i said on this episode it's a reset button it kicks you in the nuts and you just really have to go like is what am I am, am I on the right path? Do I need to make a detour? All that kind of stuff. It all it all comes to mind, you know. Um, and you and for me, even I went down I went down dark places. Not I don't and I don't want anybody thinking I'm I'm thinking bad things or suicidal. But like I I'm a, such a believer in honoring our firefighters in the memorial aspect, um, you know. And I've been out to Colorado Springs. I've given a flag in 2019 to a widow. 
I'm going to do the same thing this year. And I had thoughts of like, God damn, is somebody going to end up giving Lauren a flag? And that that's fucked up and you shouldn't think that. But I had those thoughts and it's in stuff that I, I had to just talk it out. I didn't want to just internalize that. Like, um, and I don't know if I'm being overdramatic. I don't know if other people have these thoughts, but they just don't say it. I kind of don't care. I just, here it comes. Maybe that helps other people. I know that they're, you know, they think other things like that too. I, I don't know, but, um, it sucked. I I've been, I'm just now really getting back into taking the realm of the, the, you know, just taking back the peer support team. I had other people helping out, um, just while I dealt with all this stuff. So just now slowly starting to get back to n- what I would consider normal. Um, I know the first we have our, the first training we do basically trainings every two months. And the first training that we're doing on July 8th is all about self care. Um, and I, I, you know, I had a, the, you know, what do I want to do? And I was like, let's do that because I've had to do that. And the whole, resiliency thing too. I, I think that's, that's big. Uh, I happened, gosh, I, I was scheduled to do the IFF training. It was like the week I was diagnosed and I was like, part of me was like, I don't want to do this. And the other part of me was like, no, this is probably important, especially right now to go through this and to see where we're at and, and work through things. And that, and that was very helpful. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the, the flags. And again, that's something that, that I talk about here talks about in the book um and that's what's that's what drives me that's what angers me that's what fires me up is to me personally through my lens my opinion so many of the men and women that we lose the deaths are preventable not just in the fire service in general in in you know the population the covid deaths recently the the fact that you know obesity and and you know all the areas of ill health that thrive in modern society was suppressed and they just focused on that virus was disgusting because the virus itself you know absolutely killed some people that were seemingly healthy but a majority of the people they just finished off who were already incredibly ill and it's the same in the fire service you know it i got so sick of watching folded flags being given to grieving families that and and i've talked about this i fucking hate bagpipes now you know we had two years where we buried six people and it was a host of diseases it wasn't one thing it wasn't always cancer it was you know overdose and suicide and autoimmune disease and heart disease and strokes and because the body is beaten down and whatever opportunistic disease is going to show you know raise its hand first is what kills that man or woman and so you telling your stories and us discussing carcinogens and exposures and sleep deprivation and mental health is so important and you shouldn't be embarrassed about talking about a dark place because this is exactly what this platform is for and out of almost 500 episodes there have to be probably 150 stories at least on here of men and women that were in a very dark place some who actually pulled the trigger or jumped off the bridge they just happened to survive so it's absolutely part of the human psyche but it's not normal so we have to look at why are we getting to the point where the most affluent society on the planet, pretty much, we have so many people who are so, you know, broken. And I mean that in a positive way. You know, that's something that we can fix. But you look at childhoods, you look at, you know, some of these environments that people grew up in, you look at 
organizational stress and the trauma we see at work and all these compounding elements and then you add sleep deprivation which completes you know just destroys the brain these are all fixable things but we have to have these conversations and there's people like you telling your story you know that allows us to understand all this suppressed stuff all this elephant in the room bullshit has created so many fucking coffins that have been lowered into the ground and i'm sick of it memorializing the dead is bullshit Saving people from dying is what we should be doing. And there's discussions like this that have to be had. It's kind of this whole thing is, uh, well, it's been frustrating too, I think, from my end. Because um, here I am, and you've said it before, I'm the guy preaching about this stuff. I've been preaching and preaching, um, and some people have listened. I mean, it hasn't gone on deaf ears, but there has been some. You know, my I, the last line of duty death we had was a cancer one. And I, for whatever reason, I feel like I've become the, I don't know, the funeral director for the department, for lack of better terms. I feel like I end up putting all this together and coordinating uh, in the last few ones. And and I know, you know, the, the chief's there. He he gives the flag. I mean, that's that's his job. And I remember him telling me coming up afterwards and saying, we need to, we need to do something about this, you know. And he says that to me, but then. You know, what? Nothing, really. I mean, I get cancer. It doesn't even call me. Text, email, visit, nothing. You know, so it's like, you know, I step back and I'm just, it's just disheartening. It's just because it's, it's, it's going to keep happening. It's going to keep happening. And I'm, I'm, I'm a firefighter. I'm nobody. You know, I have no say. I have, the only say I have is when I, when I, you know, put on my union uniform and at least I get a talk, but nobody, I, don't, I just, they don't listen. And so it's frustrating. Um, and even with that, I'm not going to stop. I'm, I'm going to be a pain in the ass. I'm going to keep, you know, cause it's even, it was already personal. Now it's really fucking personal. Um, and I just have to keep going and it's just, and that is, not only is that cancer, but that's, that's, it's over the years, it's transformed to be behavioral health as well. You know, my job is to really deal with both of that stuff and uh, a department that's had multiple suicides, just trying to try my best knowing that there's no guarantee, but trying to my best to make sure there's not another one, none on my watch and that everybody that has issues are taken care of. And I, and I, you know, I have, I have to deal with hurdles with that, and it's just it's just frustrating. Again, like I know how it is. I know how it is to give a flag. I've been there. It fucking sucks. My soul was taken out of my body when I did that, and I'm going to do it again here in a couple months. Uh, to the, I mean, the guy who married my wife and I, I talked him into being an ordained minister. And I'm going to do that again. And it's, uh, and, but you know, I mean, I, I don't know how you can go through that experience and just look the other way and do nothing about it. And when I'm given a flag, it's like a year later, they're given a flag days later. And just nothing. And I know that's not everywhere. 
And thankfully that's so people, you know, this happens and, and they do make change and they try their best to make sure it doesn't happen to any of their other members. That's not what's happening where I'm at. Yeah. Well, I mean, and thank you for, for your thoughts, because I mean, that's, that's what needs to be said, not this PC bullshit. And I, and I've seen a common denominator and I'll point out some personality types of people. If you're the kind of tool bag that comes up with phrases like clean cabs, stop grabs, then you're part of the fucking problem. If you're the kind of chief that says, oh, if I give my men and women more time off, they'll only go and work more over, you know, go and work on their days off, then you're part of the fucking problem. You know what I mean? If you're the one that says, oh, you know, you knew what you signed up for, rub some dirt in it, you're part of the fucking problem. And all you people that we just talked about, if you make fun of the Europeans, uh, fire helmet, because you think your super absorbent leather one is the dog's bollocks, even though it's a hundred fucking years old, then you're also part of the problem. If you think that you can't, that it's more important to make fun of a of a handle on a fire hose than it is talk about mental health or cancer, all the things that save lives, then you're also part of the fucking problem. Because this is the nauseating bullshit that I see on some of my platforms and here, even in some of the conversations. And all that is taken away from the wellness message that we're trying to move forward. And if Navy SEALs and PJs and members of the SAS and SWAT and everyone else can come on here and talk about their darkest days and talk about having their heart ripped out from them when they lost someone, then you, whoever's listening that thinks that they're better than that, you're fucking wrong. We are all, we all signed up to make the world better, to save lives. And yet we're going to push against the very thing that is killing, you know, we're allowing the things that are killing our men and women in these professions. So we have to unify. We've seen such a division. And our, our organization, our profession is so fucking siloed. And how has it got to that point? We talk about brotherhood, yet cities and counties don't play together. Police and fire don't play together in some areas. That's what a disgrace and what a void of leadership. And I'm calling out people, whether it's unions, whether it's cities and counties, whatever. If that's you, if you fit the bill right now, you're part of the fucking problem. Because, Jim, you're sick of burying men and women. I'm sick of burying men and women. And this does need to change. And there are solutions. But shift work is killing our men and women. And I'm all for the 24. But the 2472, at the minimum, should be a fucking industry standard. We need to have... The, the humility to look at Sweden and understand that their decon is absolutely saving lives. As outside the fire service, we look at drug prohibition and see how that's creating the murder and the awful, you know, environment that we have, especially in, in the UK and the US and Australia and some of those places. There are solutions to so many of these issues, but we have to be humble and we have to get to the root. And the only way we do that is we unify our voice and say enough is enough, but not say enough is enough. Then roll up your sleeves and actually fucking do something about it. You're fired up, my friend. <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, your passion is right on. Um, and and my, you know, like, look, I, I my job is to care about our firefighters, our paramedics, our, our current members, to make sure that they don't leave the job broken and that they are able to get through the job and enjoy their life, enjoy their retirement, be there for their family. That that's my goal. And, uh, and that's, that's current and past. I'm there. You know, I have the ability, uh, to go out and train our, our rookies. Um, 
and and I don't sugarcoat it. It's very matter of fact uh, with you know the realities of just our very own department, whether you know behavioral health, suicide, the cancer stuff. I, I have that time alone with them, and I tell them, I tell them, I stress it, and it, James, it's frustrating because it doesn't seem to matter. I talk about how. Your very first day, for example, your very first day, you could, you, there's a good chance you catch a fire and it's going to be time to do overhaul and you're the rookie and you're, you're expected to be the first one in there and the last one to leave. And you're going to see people around there, around you, your, your fellow crew that you just met, they're going to take off their mask. There's a good chance, you know, and you're going to be left with a decision right then and there, probably day one, you're going to take your mask off or you're going to keep it on. I've just told you all the reasons why you need to keep it on, but are you going to give in right away, you know, day one? And more often than not, I mean, there's a few people out there, they give in. They give in to the peer pressure, and they just continue the bad habits that have been around since 1863 where I'm at. And it's just, I don't know what else to do. I, I have no idea. Um, I've always had to bring in other people that have dealt with cancer to try to make it personal this time around. I'll be able to talk about my own story, but I, I have no idea. The only thing I could, the only thing I can do is hope that the actual department makes a stance and makes it a point and actually, you know, requires people to wear their stuff and do the right thing. Um, for the betterment of them and their family. And that, that means discipline. It means discipline. You know, I know that's not a very union thing for me to say, but which is more important, you know, being disciplined or staying the fuck alive. And it's just a, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing battle. But, and, and, and I get frustrated and, and, you know, I have to take a step back, but I always just go, all right, just keep going. Just, you know, keep moving forward. And if I, if I make change in one person then I know it's all worth it. And I know, and I already know I have, um, you know, there's been positive outcomes from my advocacy. Um, but I want there to be more and more. Yeah. I mean, here we are having a conversation and you just told your own journey not only advocating for cancer specifically or you know people that are find themselves patients of cancer but now yourself so you, you know i'm coming from a point of i haven't had it and it still angers me because i've had to bury friends you're coming from the point of having buried friends and now literally are going through it yourself so i don't know how much more of a raw story you can get and more you know and to, and again the the focusing on the fact that we all sign up to make the world better yet we seem to be so resistant to things that make our own world better and if you make our own world better we are then going to be able to function at a much higher level most firefighters most police officers that are deep in their career are functioning at a, a deficit so imagine how much faster stronger quicker you would be if you were given you know, the environment for you to thrive. And that's not the case, you know, and I talk to so many of these special operations, you know, warriors that come on here and that community specifically 
are given the tools that they're needed. They're given the rest and recovery, the nutri- you know, nutrition. Yes, of course, there are times where they're not going to sleep eight hours every night, but overall, they are trying to to create the most elite tactical athletes, you know, and, and forge longevity and forge resilience and grit. Well, we're no different. And they all say we hold police and fire to the same standard as us. So that's that's just it. There are so many other communities that are doing it, and we just have to band together as a as a profession and how like i said have the humility to understand that the answers are out there and that's what this project is all about is i'm just trying to join people together i'm i'm not an expert i'm just a regular firefighter i was never at one of the big events you know i've already retired at 14 years you know so i'm not some authority in any of these but i know the people that are and i'm trying to bring them bring them on so with i don't that, know Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, please, please. You, no, 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 I should, I should let you finish. Well, I was just going to say, with that, I think the solution is exactly what we're doing. There are so many filters, and because we were in silos in our profession, no one knows what neighboring departments do, what departments in other states, departments in other countries. And what's beautiful about the podcast medium is that we're la- we're able to exchange knowledge. Like I just saw that randomly one of the the highest. Uh, um, downloaded um, cities this month of this podcast is in Belgium. How amazing is that? That for whatever reason, whatever that looks like in Belgium, there's a bunch of people in that that country that are listening to all the episodes that are on here. No filters, just accessing it and knowledge sharing. So what I was going to say to you, so tell me about when you decided to to create that because I think that's exactly one of the ways that we do change. We educate, we empower, we get people pissed off to the point where they light, you know, torches and grab pitchforks and metaphorically step the fuck up. I I, I want to answer that, but I want to, before I do that, I want to talk about us in general as firefighters and police and everybody else. To do the what we do, there needs to be some kind of feeling of almost invincibility. I don't know if you've heard this before or not, but we do some crazy shit on the job. And and that invincibility can be a good thing because we do crazy shit on the job. But it also can hurt us because we often go, yeah, it happened to Joe, but it's not going to happen to me. Yeah, I, you know, it's just, it's just I'm fine. I'm I'm good. It's not going to happen to me. And they just, you have that denial. And that's kind of that invincibility. So that... That mentality that helps us and allows us to do this job also hurts us when it comes to a lot of this stuff too. You know, if we if we would have known, if we really believe that there's a good chance, maybe that would change how we do things. I'm not sure if you've ever heard anything said like that or not. Yeah, no, but I agree with you as well because you have to. And the way I look at it, even with the mental health thing, you know, people talk about, oh, you know, weren't you scared? When I look at the most of the fires and, and incidents I've been on, Apart from being handed the dead baby, which I think all of us, that's, that's pucker factor. Um, you know, most of the time at the time, no, I don't feel like I'm scared. But, you know, after the fact is when you process it. I think we get in that flow state, which, which, you know, is seen as courage, you know, but you're just leaning into your training. Basically, it's the repetitions, hopefully, that you've done. But I think, you know, where we have to look at ourselves is not when we were in the moment, you know, pushing our way into a structure fire or, you know, working a wreck. It's that feeling after. And after is when all those things hit you and that's when you have to process it. So we're, 
we're not invincible. We're well trained. We're hopefully the right people for the job. But then the moment that incident kind of wraps up, that's the human side. And that's the part that we should be looking at. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're like sports people. Yeah. At that moment, you're, you're absolutely in the flow state. You're in the zone. But then that, that only lasts till the game's over. Then you're back to being a normal person again. So don't be fooled by that moment of heroism. Be, you know, look at the human being that, that was there the other 23 and a half hours of the day. Absolutely. Um, going back to your question about the podcast, how I even started that, you know, I had been, you know, being in this really the cancer field, I guess, for quite a while, I mean, I guess in the grand scheme of things, cause it's kind of, is a new thing. I had the ability of just knowing lots of res- researchers and just interesting people. And, um, I wanted to just be able to learn from them, learn more, see what they're doing, go more in depth with their studies. Uh, and I just thought that, well, if I want to do that, why don't we share with everybody else? And so I, I, I just started this podcast and made some call to some friends and, and kind of, it just went from there. And, you know, the, the whole desire is for, for me to become better, to have a better understanding of whatever, you know, field they're in, whether it is mental health or, or, you know, exercise, nutrition, uh, obviously the firefighter cancer stuff to learn more about that. But also, you know, it is a, it's a interesting thing to, to pass on to everybody else with the hope that they gain the same knowledge that I am too. So, uh, and it's been, it's been a crazy ride. I know you can attest, um, because one person opens up the door to another person and just, if I didn't do this, I mean, I'd be missing out on so much knowledge, you know, and I don't, I, you know, I was, I've, I've written a few different articles for different magazines and they're just so time consuming. I hate doing them. This was in a way a better version of doing that, but doing it with the actual researchers that came up with the science that's going to help us. And it's also, I mean, what I've realized, at least as of late, it's a great way to just keep everybody else informed of me and what's going on. I, I've made I've made the most out of this. I think the way I do my shows is to not make it about me and to make it about the other person. But when I had the opportunity, it was a good fit, I think, to tell my own story. I even had my wife on this. You know, I had her do a show like, hey, here's a mic. Press the button to start. Press the button when you're done and just talk about everything you've been through. So, um, it's been, it's been great. I know, I know you can attest, you're still doing this almost 500 shows into it. Um, putting out seven shows a week, it seems like. <laughs> Feels like three. But <laughs> no, but I think that's just it. And, you know, with, you know, I got into this again because I knew there were some people that had answers and I'm like, no one's listening to, these people and and they need to be heard within this profession um and then as obviously then that's a it's a, a rabbit hole and then as you said you know four and a half years later you're like oh my god there's thousands more people that need to hear you know that need to be heard so uh it is amazing but along the way you're you're adding to your own education as as a host as an interviewer and so that's what i find is the more solutions to problems you find the more angry in a positive way you get because it's like well all these people are dying you know, i've seen this as a medic i've seen this as a firefighter 
And so many of these are preventable. So this is such a great platform to bring, as you said, some of these guests to the responders of the world, the civilians of the world, and hopefully start educating them. And maybe they will have some aha moments before they end up getting sick or even worse. And, and you're right, the, the the reach you have, you mentioned Belgium earlier for you. I mean, it's it's all over the place for me too, all different I need to, I need to get somebody on Antarctica to listen to me once and then I'll check all of them. <laughs> but, but it's, it's the reach you have is just amazing. Uh, because when it comes down to it, the issues that you are talking about and I talk about are worldwide. It's not just here. It's everywhere. You know, everybody has fires. Everybody has mental health issues. You know, there's a lot of, they may be different here and there, but all in all, it's it's the same root issues. Yeah. But what I find as well is that there are places all over the world that have figured out a lot of things, that have solutions to a lot of things. So whether it's Finland's education, whether it's Norway's prison systems, whether it's Portugal's drug policy, the NHS, which I adore when it's fully funded and staffed, which it isn't at the moment because they've cut them and cut them and cut them. But those are all you know incredible ideas that have worked so well when they're supported. And so by not only sharing these guests around the world, but getting those guests back from around the world and bringing them back to the UK and the US and Australia and New Zealand and you know everyone else from, from countries outside, the ones that, that are actually talking at that point, that knowledge sharing is, is making people realize, no, we, we can do this better. We've been indoctrinated to be like, we're the best in the world. No, we're fucking not. No one country is the best in the world. Stop saying that. There are areas of, of, you know, culture in the U.S. that are phenomenal, that are the best in the world. And there are areas of every other country that are doing things better than us. So we have to have the humility, whether it's fire department to fire department, fire to police, fire, you know, fire to military or, you know, the U.S. to the rest of the world. Drop your ego and have the humility to learn from people that have figured it out and we will save lives hand over fist. I think that's this all. Another thing that started with me is like I went to. I always heard Europe was was so far ahead of us, you know, when it came to firefighter cancer. I mean, that's at least you know what I was hearing stirring up here, and to the point where I was like, okay, well, I want to go check this out. And I went over there. I went. I went to England. Went to different brigades there. I went to Sweden. I, I actually hung out with with your friends Dave and Stefan, and I was able to to see firsthand. Wow, they got their shit together. They, you know, this is above and beyond anything what we're doing here in the states. And I was able to bring back those lessons, you know, to the states. Everything that I learned and saw firsthand. I mean, still the pictures I have from their station are, are just amazing. Um, so being able to do this with this microphone has been um, incredible. Just and and it's it's obviously saved a lot of travel time too and money. Instead of going over there. But the other thing I like too is just, um, and I really realized this with uh, the resolutions that we did with the IFF regarding PFAS this year is how impactful this microphone that we use can be. Like you have a voice, like you can put yourself out there. If you believe in something, you make a stand and you can, you can share your voice. Um, I saw that last January with uh, the resolutions I've, um, plan on doing that same thing with everything we have going on regarding NFPA and trying to get these chemicals out of the gear. Um, yeah, this microphone is, you know, 
people can learn from it, but they can, they can also be educated, which is the same kind of thing really. But it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad I got into this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad too, because now we're having this conversation. So there we go. So just the people, the people that I've met, whether it's on here, but then going later on and meeting them virtually or not virtually, but in real life, I mean, I've got, I've obtained some great relationships by doing this. Absolutely. Well, tell me about the formation of firefighter cancer consultants. Okay. So let's see. 2014 ish. I'm at that point in time, I was still with the firefighter cancer support network. I had stepped back to being the Ohio guy. And, um, I just, them and I, the, the guys that were taking over and myself were just on it, on it. We had different visions of things. I think the fact that I had been there, I, 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 you know, by that point before that I was, I was interim president. I, I took over for Mike DeBron when he stepped down for personal reasons. And I just, I don't think I was happy with the direction and I don't think they were happy with me because I was being annoying, being a pain in the ass as well. So that's a, could be a theme. And we just, we went our separate ways. They, they were done with me and I was ready to move on. So I ended up starting, it's not an organization. It's, I mean, it's a for-profit group. I thought about, you know, doing my own nonprofit, but when, in reality of it, I thought I would just be ending up mimicking what I, what the FCSN does, because I still believe in them. I still believe in what they do, especially the mentor side of things when you get diagnosed and there's other cancer organizations out there. And I just, honestly, I didn't trust them. Um, there's just stuff that doesn't seem on the up and up. So I started my own thing in which I really just work with one department at a time. And I, I go and I, I visit, I look at all our policies, procedures, I do station inspections and I end up comparing our current practices to the best practices that are out there based on the standards and the science and do trainings with all their members and just with the hope of just setting them up for the future, you know, doing everything they can do now to hopefully prevent that diagnosis from coming altogether or if nothing else, catching it early on to where you're just like me, where you're able to still continue to work and still have you know, basic, uh, the same level of life that you had before. Uh, so I've been doing that since, you know, 2014 worked, you know, all throughout the U S and Canada went back when we were able to go up there, which I'm hoping they open up soon. Uh, and that's been, that's been positive. It's not, uh, the scale that I was doing stuff with the firefighter can support network as far as the reach goes, but it's just so much more personal. And I know that there has been just again, positive outcomes, from a lot of places I went to where they've taken everything seriously. I, I leave them with what I call an action plan report that just spells everything out. It gives them guidance. This is where you're at. This is what you need to do to get there. So, Brilliant. And if people want to learn more and reach out to you about that, what's the best place online? Firefightercancerconsultants.com. It's also, I have Facebook and Twitter and I don't have a MySpace. And then where do they find the podcast? The, uh, the 25 live.com, which I was amazed that was still available, but it is 25 live.com. And what's the, the theme behind the, the name? How did you come about that? Well, uh, you remember me talking about, uh, the white paper from 2013, um, where we had at the end, we had the 11 steps you could take. Well, I just thought over the years, I mean, we're now 2021 
we've evolved. We know so much more uh, to this. So I basically updated a list and I called it the 25. There's 25 different steps that you could take to help prevent, you know, being diagnosed with cancer. And I made it into a checklist in which, you know, each department can really do a self-evaluation, see what they're doing right, see, and then, you know, check off the box and whatever is left, that's what you need to work on. So um, I was I was really pushing that uh, as a program and it kind of just dubbed into, well, what if I called it 25? And I, and I think the other significance about that too is, I mean, everybody has to do different years as far as when they can retire, you know, next door to me in Indiana, they got to do 20, you know, I don't know what it was in Florida, but in Ohio, it's 25. Yeah, it's 25. So, Most of the places I work, I think they just bumped it up to 30, though, which it's nice to see that we're regressing even more here in the state of Florida. But Yeah, the new the new kids that get hired now in Ohio have to go, they have to do their 25 years and they can retire at the age of 52. But then they'll stay and they'll do drop for another eight years. So, Yeah. Well, I think that's just it. And, we, then, and one, then die two years later, right? Exactly. We, we got to do one of two things. Either we got to change the way that we work or we got to look at the fire service like the military where most people will do, you know, four, eight years and then transition to something else because we know categorically that if we work the way we do now that, yeah, you're not going to have much of a retirement at all because you're going to be buried within five years. And of course, you know, there are anomalies, but... Overall, and if you kind of look around your retirees, that's it's definitely a thing. Whether it's you know scientifically, excuse me, scientifically acknowledged or not, which it is, I believe. Um, yeah, I mean, you don't want to be that guy that you know dies with a great bank account. What's the point? There, there. I think there's been enough, even on my own department, where guys have done their 25, and then they've done their eight years of drop, and then they have they've made it like two years and they die to the point in which there's been enough of that to where these older guys now, there's a lot of them that just, you know what, they get their time and they run. They walk out the door. They, they're not worried about drop. Or if they do drop, it's minimum. It's just a little bit. And they've realized that their life is more important than having, you know, that second home or that, that beach house or whatever it is, you know, four or $500,000 in a bank. You know, those those should be the best years of your life when you're, 50 years old and you, you still are functional and you can travel the world and, and watch your family grow. Um, it's, you know, at what cost? I mean, that's what it comes down to all this stuff at what cost. Yeah. Yeah. You'll, you'll, you know, you'll have money in your bank account that you'll never be able to use. Absolutely. And the thing is with the, with the current model, you know, what what ends up happening is you lose all that experience well, why don't we create an environment that allows women and, and men and women to thrive? Therefore, they do stay longer and we do pass on that knowledge and we are much better responders. But right now, if we're breaking our men and women down to the point where they're retiring out early on medical disability or, God forbid, even dying before they retire or die right after, I mean, we're just, we're just destroying that knowledge pool too. So there is no downside to fixing this issue. Zero. Everything is a plus. Absolutely. Beautiful. All right. Well, then transitioning to some closing questions. Uh, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely unrelated. I've just said, you know, I've, I've had to look in this book so much because I've been so, I've gone down this rabbit hole, as you like to say, regarding these chemicals, these PFAS. And that Rob Bilot's book, Exposure, has just been 
something I've been enamored with um, just because it's so relative. And this is a guy that really brought this stuff to the forefront. And this is the same guy that's that's really, I mean, he's got our back We can't, you know, regarding all this stuff too. Beautiful. What about a movie and or documentary? Would it be the ones that you already mentioned of his as well? Yeah, as far as documentary goes, The Devil We Know is great. And and if you're more of a Hollywood person, then yeah, check out The Dark Waters. It's got Mark Ruffalo in it. Uh, I took my my mother to see that in the theaters back when, well, I guess we're able to do that now. Uh, but I took her there, and I know she she walked out. She was so disgusted with everything. You know, she's like, ah, oh, fuck DuPont. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Which is not something my mother typically says, but it's true. Um as far as the other movie goes, just for entertainment wise, I just I love Rudy. <laughs> I know that may sound silly, but I mean I, I I like Notre Dame. I've been to South Bend a bunch. Um, I've been in that stadium, um, and I just I love I love the underdog, the story that the guy that just keeps fighting. Absolutely, that's pertinent to this discussion. It shouldn't be it shouldn't be the little guy, but it is, and I think it's it's more ignorance and we're fighting than anything else you know what i mean i don't think anyone wakes up and decides that they want to kill first responders today but we've just devolved to this point where it's happening you know on this on this near genocidal level if you look outside our profession the same issues that are killing us whether it's in you know the prisons or you know hospitals i mean all these shift workers dispatchers i mean this is the same issue over and over and over again you know so there are so many things we can do to to change but yeah there's there's a lot of very ingrained um you know ways that people have always done it and sadly there are some some organizations with ulterior motives and the nation's health is the least of their concerns so money over money over health profit over health absolutely all right well then the next question is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world i think the knowing kind of some of the shows you've done, knowing a lot of shows you've done, I, I love, um, I think this guy named Byron Branch would be a good fit for you. He is a, a Dayton police officer and uh, he's also a, a badass uh, fencer. Oh, really? We're talking like, like US, U.S. team, all this kind of stuff. And he was uh, helping out. Uh, there was a car crash on the highway and a car ended up crashing into his cruiser and ended up taking his leg. And he still, he, he got, you know, as Forrest Gump would say, he got it, or Lieutenant Dan's got his magic leg. He's got, he's got his, 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 uh, his new leg on there and he's back working and he's still fencing, which is badass. And he is, uh, just a cool, cool cat. I, I think he'd be a great fit because it, you know, he, he's the athlete, he's the cop. I mean, he, he strikes, you know, there's several different check marks that he gets for, for you. Yeah. I think. No, he sounds phenomenal. Absolutely. Is this someone you could connect me with? Absolutely. Beautiful. Let's make it happen. And then, uh, yeah, I definitely need to reach out to Rob as well. I think that, that needs to be a topic that's addressed when it comes to the chemicals. Cause you know, you hear kind of bits and bobs about that subject, but I think someone as well versus him, He'd probably be able to paint the picture a lot better, you know. Than he 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 does a great job of uh, simplifying it to to us, because um, I mean he again he battles scientists and everything else, but yet he can really break it down. Um, I had a great conversation with him. He's 
we're actually doing a, a, a conference right here in exotic Beaver Creek, Ohio in November. And the whole, the last day Friday is, uh, I call it PFOS Palooza. And he's, he's going to be there for that. We're going to have uh, we're going to do a screening of dark waters the night before. And he's going to be part of. So again, it's, it's, I'm fortunate that he's, he's this close. Um, and it's, and it's, if you're going to do it, I'd, I'd ask that you do it sooner than later because, uh, it's so relevant right now. Again, fighting NFPA regarding all this stuff. Uh, we're trying our best. And this is when I say we, I mean the IFF, uh, a lot of us are all on the same team trying to get these chemicals out of our fire gear. And there's, there's, uh, an opportunity right now to do that. So, you know, I'm sure he can help out with, with, with that as well. But we, we have the opportunity to have our gear, not have these chemicals. And it's just another way to reduce our exposure. You know, we're supposed to wear our gear to protect us, but yet it could be harming us. And that just, that's, that's screwed up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one thing. I, again, I don't see malice in a lot of companies probably at the root, but once it's discovered that it is harmful, then they need to go, oh, we need to change this immediately. And that's the problem I think you find, whether it's cigarettes, whether it's, you know, Monsanto, whatever it is, I'm sure at the actual beginning, killing people wasn't, you know, at the root. But again, as I said, with prevention, environmental is a huge one. I talk about the spraying of our foods all the time. You know, you mentioned the little lad, um, was it, was it Gavin that had the, the cancer? Yeah. I mean, five years old, that should be the only cancers we should really be addressing because everything else I think is pretty much environmentally based. So we should be, you know, organic shouldn't even be a word. All our food should be free of chemicals and, you know, the, the earth should be, should be returned to the way where it's, it's natural again and our water is clean. And again, I think you would make such an impact so that pediatric cancers would be the last thing we could funnel a lot of the research money into. But, you know, right now when, you know, we have such ill health in the nation, I think, you know, the environmental element is, is a huge, a uh, topic that we need to address. What is going into our bodies that is causing this on top of obviously poor diet, lack of movement, that kind of thing. Well, I want to say real quick, Gavin, by the way, I should have said the kid's in college now. I was going to ask going, you. He's going to Ohio State and he's actually, he wants to be an oncologist. So, I mean, how cool is that whole thing? That is amazing. Now, what, to, what worked for him treatment-wise? Dude, chemo. I mean, it's so, God, I remember visiting him and the pictures and just, uh, I mean, I mean, he's the same, God, yeah, I never really thought about it. I got a five-year-old now. I mean, you met him the other day. He's a little shit, but I love him. <laughs> um, yeah, and I just to see him at five years old go through all that, I mean, that's just, it was just screwed up. But to, to really kick out and and just pay it forward like take all that stuff even at five years old to to just remember everything you've been through and and know that you want to help out um others that that are dealing with that i mean that's that's huge you know i think what i'm doing is is helpful and big and i know i'll pay it forward but now that's that's a whole different level paying it forward is what he's doing he's a good kid well, yeah. So let's let's def- definitely make um, Rob's interview happen soon as well, because I'm I'm a f- huge believer in that. I think so many of these cancers are preventable, you know, through a number of of things, whether it's you know sleep deprivation, whether it's environmental, you know, influences through chemistry. 
you, you talked about how you know the industry plays it. I mean, the chemical industry now is using the same playbook that was passed on with big tobacco. I mean, it is the this exactly the same, and uh, and to. I mean, again, everybody in this country, everybody in this world are dealing with these chemicals, but for firefighters having to deal with foam and then our gear itself is like, we just have that additional exposure and we're already, you know, we're already prevalent for cancer. So if we can do things to reduce that, I know the foam manufacturers are working on that. I mean, they're making progress behind that. And a lot of that has to do with the military, but these, this gear is, it's a whole nother fight. And the, and the problem is, if I may, I can now keep dragging you. No, please. It's clear that firefighters don't want to wear this gear. They they have no desire to. When we had the two different resolutions regarding these chemicals at the IFF convention, which is just firefighters, those two conv- those two passed three thousand and four to fourteen. So somewhere out there, there's fourteen people that disagree with us. But there's 3,004 that say we don't want this shit in our gear anymore. But when you get to NFPA, now all of a sudden you have these, you have the gear manufacturers there, you have DuPonts on the committee, you have all these different, you know, places that have vested interest in the chemical, um, in the manufacturing business. And, and they have, all of a sudden they have a say on it. It's not just firefighters. Firefighters are like a third of the committee. So it is, uh, the odds don't look great. I mean, they're against us, but we're still going to fight the fight and keep this going. And the fact that we had the general president of the IFF sign this and submit this, I mean, when he signed that, he was, it's one thing for James Gearing or Jim Burnick to sign it. When he signs it, he's signing it for 324,000 members. So I think that that's pretty powerful. Now, just with that being said, Bunker gear in other countries is that same chemical used in theirs too? Probably. Right. So I, this is a national, international I'd, I'd problem. I bet on it. I mean, everybody has different standards, and they may say what they're likely to say is, "Hey, it doesn't have PFOA on it," you know, which again was that initial chemical. But there's nine thousand related chemicals that are out there now. There's over nine thousand, so it just means it has a cousin, and they'll go, "Well, there's no." long-term studies that there's no studies that say that is adverse effects. Well, you know, it's, we do have one study that shows that this, it's brother, it's cousin did have health effects. Are we going to have to do test all 9,000 plus chemicals, all, all these variants before we, we know we finally can say it's safe or are we going to say, you know what, let's get rid of all this stuff and just assume that it's bad. We can't even get the That's, fire service to do a sleep study. No matter the gear. I mean, that's what people ask me. Oh, James, you know, can you send me proof that, you know, a 56 hour work week is, he- is less healthy than a 42? Firstly, I'm like, I'm sorry, say that again. If, if you need me to, to show you research, then you could just punch yourself in the face and we'll be done with it because th- that's the problem is don't wait for science to prove what you already know. Common sense dictates that shift work is incredibly unhealthy. But when you look at the sleep medicine world, the research and the military and you know shipping and airline, the research is all there. And that's the thing that the fire service is terrible at is we don't need to have our own research and all these topics. It's been done. You just go to that other arena that parallels what we do and you use their research. So if there are studies showing that these chemicals are harmful to people, the fire service doesn't even need to do a damn study. 
Use the research that's already out there. That that mentality drives me crazy. Can you prove that a firefighter working fucking 14 hours more every week is going to make them more tired and more sick? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> you need to stop making sense. Stop. <laughs> stop it. I think I've sworn more in this conversation than I have in most of the ones put together. But I get, I get fired up. It's just so frustrating. I bring out the best in you, clearly. <laughs> He was well behaved live in person with the kids. Well, there we go. I can't, I can't tone it down, but we just don't talk about these topics. <laughs> but no, so I, I, a hundred percent what you're saying. I agree with, um, the, I can tell you this. I, I was part of the national fallen firefighters, uh, research conference we had a few months ago and sleep was a huge topic. Um, it was all these other topics that haven't, that have kind of been ignored. Um, volunteerism and fire, departments and, and cancer and uh, the wall and the, the wooey interface, um, you know, having studies on them and also just uh, reproductive issues, you know, maternity. I mean, there was, there was a lot of issues that we realized that we've, we've neglected, but sleep was something that came up and came up and came up. So I'm hoping something actually comes out of it here because like you said, even though there's all the science, they're going to trust ones that we do because that's, that's the fire service. Well, the reproductive health, I think that's absolutely interwoven in the sleep deprivation. Because when you look at the impact, you know, our testosterone, you know, in men and women is absolutely slashed. So, so you look at just, just from that element alone, you know, most, most responders I know that have been on more than, you know, a few a handful of years, their testosterone is in the toilet. And that's absolutely, you know, as a result of sleep deprivation. So then think about the reproductive health of men and women if those sex hormones are completely destroyed by the sleep disruption. So I think we can solve so many of these issues that we do see because I see, I've seen a lot of infertility amongst, you know, a lot of the guys I work with. I didn't, you know, knock out a bunch of kids myself. So I'm sure I'm part of that. And then, you know, a lot of miscarriages as well. So, um, you know, and even pediatric illnesses. So when we look at all that, like what is the health of our eggs and our sperm 10 years after being awake every third day? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I did a show and it's another person that would be, I think great for you is, was Heather uh, from San Francisco. And and I also, I also tagged in Sarah Jenke, who I know, you know, as well. Yeah. And, and they've, you know, Sarah's done some research, but Heather being a San Francisco firefighter and everything she's dealt with over the years and, uh, all of her other fellow female firefighters has been, I just look at it and just shake my head. Like there's, you should not be treated like this at all. Like, and, and the, the laws need to change and, and we need to do yet more and more studies regarding that too. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, very last question then, before we make sure everyone knows where to find you online, what do you do to decompress these days? Hmm. You know, I even knew that was coming. I should have been <laughs> prepared. Oh, <laughs> uh, I just, man, I, I've, I have enjoyed just sitting outside and just chilling and just, you know, fire pit, you know, we got a nice back porch, but just, just being home, knowing I'm going to be in my own bed. Uh, it's been great the last, you know, month and a half as I've recovered from all this stuff. Um, we've got, uh, and I, I, you know, I live in a neighborhood. I mean, I got, I got some land, half acre, nothing crazy. It feels like a, I'm on a farm compared to how I was when I grew up, but just, we still have wildlife. There's a, uh, just even the last week, all of a sudden we've had this 
like red tip hawk show up. That's just been awesome. So it's been cool just being outside. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's probably about it right now. Uh, just just trying to relax and uh, I've I think I've thought more about stuff than I I have before because I finally had time to just to do that. Before I was just going at a just nonstop. Um, something is always going on. And, and when all this happened, I, I really took off about everything from my plate and slowed down. And that's been good. And it's, I need to make sure that I continue to try to do that moving forward. That whole work-life balance is in a word that I actually act that out too. Absolutely. Well, for people listening, you, you talked about the podcast already and the, um, the firefighter cancer consultant site. Are there any other places people can reach out to you online? Oh, uh, let's see. Adult friend finder. Um, <laughs> Only fans. Uh, oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. MySpace. Uh, no, uh, no, I think that that pretty much covers it. I, like I said, I'm on, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm pretty active on that. I'm LinkedIn. I've got Instagram. I don't know what the hell I'm doing on that thing. Um, but yeah, so I'm all over all those sites. If somebody needed to actually email me, the easiest one is, uh, Jim Bernica Jr., I probably should spell that B-U-R-N-E-K-A is the Bernica at gmail.com. Well, I just want to say thank you. I mean, not only your journey in the fire service and becoming an advocate on the cancer you know, topic, becoming an advocate on the mental health element, but then obviously your own personal journey and having the courage to, to talk about that. But it's so important. And, you know, again, I apologize to everyone for, for my profanity, but I, I, when I get fired up, you know, it just, it angers me because you, here you are and thank goodness your diagnosis right now is, is, is very encouraging. But so many people out there, it's not, you know, and so as many more that we've lost. So this is such an important topic. And, you know, I, I thank you for all the work that you've done in this profession for, for the podcast that you put out and for coming on today. No, well, well, thank you for that. And thank you for, it just bringing me on. I, I can't tell you. Seriously, is it's an honor, you know. I don't know why Truly. it's an honor. <laughs> it's an honor. Well, it is because you know I I call him the Podfather, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't like that nickname, but that's what he is when it comes to us. I mean, he's done so much so much good for us. Um, getting the word out. Um, you know, you made this profession better. Not just this pr- profession, but again, military and police. I I really just. I just concentrate on firefighters, so I'm helping out there. But you have just just that large of a reach. Beautiful. Well, thank you, man. I mean, like I said, I'm just here finding great people, and you're one of them. It's, it's that simple, you know. So sharing this knowledge and you know the storytelling part, I think, is so important. But thank you so much again. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to to hearing that you're doing great things when you go back to work. Hopefully, on a 40 hour week. Dayton Fire Department. I hope you're listening to this. Um, and uh, looking forward to next time we meet, we meet, whether it's up in Ohio or back down here in Florida. That sounds good. Because you're going to be, and Ken, you're going to be near um, the uh, reformata- reformatory, right? Yes, not too far from there. Okay, see, I'm still due to go up there because that's where another one of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption, was shot at. Absolutely. It's an amazing place. Everyone listening, you have to go. The Ohio Reformatory, I think it's called. Yeah. Um, incredible. You know they do a concert there. Oh yeah, I actually I, I saw a poster or something. Yeah, isn't it like yeah. a, a whole festival? Is that right? 
Yes. Yeah, that would be pretty sick to go to, actually. I'm getting too old for that shit. (laughs) Too many people. It seems cool, but at the same time, mildly disrespectful, too. So I'm not sure how I feel about it, but... (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Well, Well, thanks again, James. I appreciate it.